the legacy of John Williams. Celebrating the music and the art of Maestro John Williams. This is Maurizio Caschetto of The Legacy of John Williams. Today I'm very happy to have here with me once again, as a guest of The Legacy of John Williams podcast, soundtrack producer Mike Metesino. Hello and welcome back, Mike. Hi, Maurizio. Great to uh, be on the line with you again. Very happy to have you back here, Mike. And joining me as a co-host of the episode is head contributor of the Legacy of John Williams and now also official voice of the Legacy of John Williams podcast, Tim Burden. Hello, Tim, and welcome back, you too. Uh, Maurizio, hello. Hello, hello, Mike. Good to hear you both. And uh, yeah, it's been a few months. It's been about, I suppose... uh, Maybe we've had about 15 different versions of John Williams in Vienna since we last spoke. Uh, <laughs> possibly. I don't know. But it's great to see you both. So nice to have you back too, Tim. So we are here again to talk with Mike about what is now commonly referred by fans and admirers of the maestro as the future proofing of John Williams' musical legacy. In the last few weeks, we got new and very welcome editions of classic film scores by Maestro Williams, an expanded edition of the soundtrack for Steven Spielberg's 1989 film Always, released by La La Land Records, and before that, Quartet Records released the first official commercial edition of a celebrated John Williams score from the early 1970s, the Academy Award-nominated score for Robert Altman's Images. So, I'd like to start from this one, but before diving into our conversation, I'd like to make you listen to an excerpt from one of my personal favorite tracks from this school. This is the track called Dogs, Ponies and Old Ruins, and it features the main theme of the movie, we could say. So let's hear an excerpt and then we'll be back to discuss this school. Thank you. 
I think it's really uh, magnificent and very haunting, I would say, piece of music. So, Mike, let's talk about how this opportunity to revisit this score came your way. So, how did it all started? Yes, well, uh, this came in the form of um, being contacted by our friend Jose Benitez in Spain, uh, who owns and runs Quartet Records, saying that he has made a deal with uh, Hemdale or Handmade, whichever is the current uh, company that owns the movie. I think it was released by Hemdale, but it's now Handmade. Hard to keep tra- uh, keep it straight, but yeah. he said he had made a deal with them to release some of their titles and had found at long last some images material in their vaults in the UK. One of which was a tape source of the album that was produced in 1972 that the maestro had intended to be released commercially, but then it was not. And it's, it was then prepared as a For Your Consideration promo record, which he had a copy of, and then was subsequently, I believe, turned into a sort of, shall we say, private label release. I think spearheaded by Tony Thomas um, that had circulated around, and he had a couple of copies of that. Apparently, actually, he had two of the Oscar promos. Why they how they made their way to Spain when we can't find a single copy in Los Angeles. I don't know, but that's very interesting. But um, so, uh, so he found this new source and um, it did have some problems, but uh, you know, it was at least something to go with. And, um, and we just went from there where the usual process where I went to uh, John's reps and said, we found this, this was John's album. And we had all kinds of things to sort of go along with it. The liner notes that he'd originally written were among the Altman papers, and we found these um, session photos with uh, John and um, Stomu Yamashita, who did the, as we know, the percussion and some of the crazy vocal improvisational sound effects and things. Um, So it was a way to really give the package and give the album some legitimacy, and John was very pleased to hear that, especially since we were also doing it on vinyl. And I said, why don't we just try to make this look as much as we can, like something that you'd find in a record store bin in 1973, if the thing had actually come out. And so we went sort of down that path with it. And it was just a matter of some very meticulous cleanup and um, putting it together, came together relatively quickly and then preparing a vinyl master and uh, then a CD master. And it's very gratifying, I think, to, uh, to finally um, have it out. I had never really, you know, you know, where I first heard about this movie existing was in Steven Spielberg's liner notes on the back of the Jaws album. Oh, yes. It said, it said images there, and I had no idea what that was or what that meant until I think maybe in the early 80s when we started getting you know, the VHS era, the videotape era where some of these obscure movies would start turning up on tape and I finally came across it and saw it. And it really is a unique project within the Williams canon. And he's never gone back to anything quite like that since as a project or as in terms of compositional style. (sighs) 
this new release is an opportunity uh, for a wider audience to discover a very different side of John Williams, uh, not often heard in his other film work. Uh, in a sense, it's perhaps the film work that at the time was closer to his concert works of the same era. And of course, I'm thinking of the flute concerto and the essay for strings, which were the two big concert pieces that he wrote back then, together with the first symphony. And so, do you think he saw in this movie a kind of an ideal platform to go really further with experimentation and using a more modern language or vernacular? I mean, of course, the composer always reacts to the film and the composer writes what's right for the picture. But but do you guys think he, here John was more kind of let off a free reign to, to write anything he thought was, you know, right for the movie? Well, we're not really privy to the conversations he might have had with Robert Altman, who was a personal friend, as well as someone he'd known and worked with professionally. Um, but I can only imagine that... Um, Altman had some thoughts about the direction he might go in and how to make this um, unsettling quality of the film carry over into an unsettling quality of the music. But I think it's really what you said is that uh, John, like most composers, reacts instinctively, doesn't necessarily intellectualize the reasons why you go in a certain direction. And he basically, you know, said it himself in his own liner notes, which we found and used about finding the sculptures and going along uh, that line of thinking and having two distinct qualities of the score and a sort of a battle between something very melodic and um, and familiar with something completely unfamiliar and, and unpredictable. So I don't know that we could necessarily, you know, know that he said, oh yeah, here's an opportunity for me to do something different. Maybe he did. I was thinking about that because I'm, I'm reminded of a, of a quote from a quite recent interview he did with a New Yorker, where, with the music critic Alex Ross, and, and he said something along the lines, 
uh, I probably would have composed music on this sort of style if I wouldn't have been so much associated with film music in my music career. So I, I found that very interesting because uh, this is something we, this kind of a style, very modern, very avant-garde, very uh, full of experimentation, isn't something we usually associate with John. But we do associate it with that era of filmmaking, though, don't we? Because in 1972, we would not have seen coming um, what, ironically, John sort of became the uh, um, the sort of the poster child for the return of melodic, symphonic, um, very traditional type of film scoring. So where we were in 1972 with what some of the other composers were doing, you know, Lalo Schifrin and um, you know other, you know, Quincy Jones. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, at the time, that's where we were. We were in a very minimalistic. Um, period of time um, that was more accepted uh, or sometimes having no score at all or very little scoring. Um, so, uh, yeah, so maybe mo if movies had gone in that direction and continued in that direction, yes. uh, maybe he would have written more scores like that. But as it turns out, you know, Jaws came along, um, which, you know, he spoke about as being the first movie where he knew exactly what he could do with it and what he wanted to do with it. And let's not forget that uh, at the outset, Steven Spielberg put the first track of images as the temp score over the main title of Jaws, yes. which would be very eerie traveling through the water, you know, and you could put it, maybe some yes. people will create a video and make it and see. It kind of works. But uh, John said, oh, no, 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 images is not right. You know, let me give you something else. And came back with is something completely opposite of that. That's the thing, and uh, that's what's important, I think, to highlight with images as a film. It, it, it's very, very um, dynamic. I mean, Susanna York's performance is, is incredible, and you know some of the scenery is a lot of it is actually shot in Ireland. It's whenever you pair this score, which is very sparse, you know, it's very cleverly spotted. Whenever you pair it with the film, it, it, it's so so striking. But then, you know, whenever you have cues like. Blood Moon. I, I mean, that that's classic William String writing. I love that cue, and 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 I think you know whenever we 
we find out that Williams himself is playing the piano in you know, the cues like the final chapter, it, it gives an added dimension to the listener because, you know, not, not I suppose as often as we would think, it's not as often uh, he's actually playing piano himself. I just want to to add about uh, the beautiful packaging of this this new release because that's there's a beautiful um, art design both of the CD and on the LP and of course also I have to mention uh, John Burlingame's really really excellent notes uh, he made a, a, an essay about the movie and the music and it's really like the definitive uh, writing about this this score and this movie i think because it really goes deep well into the history into the uh, historical context and also the musical aesthetic um, of the score featuring lots of quotes from john williams uh, about this score called from various interviews that john burlingame did with john over the years and and it's absolutely stunning and also beautiful pictures of the movie and as we were saying before uh, a few pictures from the recording session with Stomi Yamashita and Robert Altman at CDS Studios uh, in London. So I definitely recommend this to any listener, to any fan of the John Williams uh, Canaan. I mean, it's it's certainly a surprising score. If you never heard it, really prepare yourself for something really outlandish, I would say. <laughs> it's something really, really... <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that, um, you know, what you're saying is partly, to get back to the music, is that you can't really feel like any moment in the film is completely grounded in sanity. There always has to be that sense that what you're seeing is not real or that the characters are not sane. And therefore the music can't really give you any dose of sanity. It, uh, so even the, um, the, when it is melodic, it's very haunting and um, it, rather nerve wracking in its own way. Even the uh, piece that you mentioned, which bears a similarity, a little bit reminiscent of Jane Eyre, which was also listed on New York, and that sort of Englishness of the um, tonalities to it. But there's something so unsettling about it, even melodically. But I think that that's, that's the key, is that the score would not be doing the right service to the movie if it didn't always sound just a slightly bit demented. <laughs> 
John Burlingame had talked about this and when I said it was coming up again, he had done a very brief essay for a previous CD release that was a vinyl rip. Um, and uh, I said, you know, here's an opportunity to go further with it. It's, I, I, you know, ironically, one of Williams's most unknown scores, but it's one that's come up in so many interviews with him. So there was a lot to tap into there. And it's the kind of movie where this comes up every so often where I think that on a lot of films, if they're famous or popular or successful, there are other places to go to, to get the behind the scenes information. But sometimes if it's more obscure, then the soundtrack becomes an opportunity as being the place to go. So I wanted him to kind of have it be sort of the definitive last word. This is where you can go to read everything about images because it really is um john williams fans probably know more about this movie than the average person it's just very obscure um i did um find interesting um in researching through the old new york times um i was trying to find out um how long fiddler on the roof played as a exclusive roadshow in new york and los angeles and I found that that went on for 13 months. It wasn't until December of 1972 when it started going wider. And the amazing thing is that on in the New York Times, when you have the ad for Fiddler on the Roof now going to other theaters, opposite it to the next page, all on one page was an ad for Images, The Beside Adventure, and Pete and Tilly. Wow. <laughs> and this was like the one or two weeks that Images had opened in New York and played and then disappeared. Even though it got an Oscar nomination, it um, really came and went. It had very little exposure in the United States at all. It's very, very popular in the um, film festival circuits over here. And actually, as, as we speak, we're speaking now on the 14th of June. And in London, the BFI are doing a, a season of Robert Altman films. And uh, th this release actually couldn't come at a better time because it's getting a lot of great radio exposure uh, over there at the moment. So, you know, it's tremendous to see. And, and uh, talking of London, I mean, uh, it's certainly something which we should highlight as well. It's another one of those key London-based scores, which we all know. I know we've, we've talked about it a lot over the years, but I don't, I don't see why we can't mention it again, that this era is so seminal in William's musical output, isn't it, in London? Yeah, but this being the only one done at CTS and with John Richards, who lives here in Los Angeles and whom Burlingame had the ability to talk to and get some recollections from as well. Wonderful guy. But that's a very, you know, much more intimate space than Anvil, which is where Fiddler and Jane Eyre had been done. That's right. All, all the James Bond films were done at CTS. Right, right, right. So, um I mean, that has its own set of history. But I think that uh, it's, you know, we've talked about this before, how with Goodbye, Mr. Chips, and then uh, Jane Eyre and Fiddler, and then this, uh, John was maybe, he enjoyed working in London, I think was looking for opportunities to do so. And then we got um, none of them until Star Wars came five years later, by which time Andre Previn was head of the LSO, which made a, had something to do with it, as well as the fact that um, Star Wars was filmed in the UK. But uh, yeah, so that, that early London period um, happening at the same time as he's doing all these other little movies in the US. Um, and then of course, leading up to the um, period where uh, um, 
John's first wife died while on location for a Robert Altman movie. Um, you know, that's all, it is a very interesting era to go back and, um, and examine and the, the, the variety of um, scores that were done then. I mean, even the ones I mentioned, you know, um, to have Pete and Tilly and Images and the Poseidon Adventure all opening at the same time um, in late 72, with Fiddler being the big hit still going. I mean, um, it was you could it was very clear right then that he could do anything. Yes, it's a, such a such a wonderful uh, era for for John that one because I think he showed lots of versatility and even a, an athleticism that was really unprecedented for for many. I mean, of course there were also Jerry Goldsmith and Lalo Schifrin and Dave Rusin, all they were writing incredible film scores in the same era. But I think John was really more of an outsider in many ways because he had such a very such a varied background that he came on the scene and and put his own stamp on and and being so versatile. I mean, the scores that you mentioned, Pete and Tilly, Poseidon Adventure, and um, of course, 1972. There's also Cowboys. I mean, there can be more more different and more diverse. I mean, it's really a, a fantastic uh, collection of music of um, film scores that are. Absolutely. That could be have written by several different composers, but he said the same voice, the same person. Yeah, so that actually was a quite a remarkable year if you're studying his work to it's a, it's a you know, really demonstrates his versatility just in that one year alone.
now let's move to the subsequent release that we saw in this mid of the year feast, I would say, of John Williams' new releases. It's the La La Land Records nearly expanded edition of Steven Spielberg's 1989 drama Always. Uh, this film was the 10th Spielberg Williams feature film collaboration. And the original soundtrack album, uh, released back in the day, contained almost all of the music that we hear in the movie, composed by John Williams, plus a few songs featured in the movie. But this new edition reveals, in my opinion, a new and perhaps deeper character in this school. So, Mike, I know that you're working on virtually all of the Spielberg-Williams collaborations uh, and restoring them, but how the opportunity to revisit this particular score came your way? Well, this one has been basically done for the better part of two years. Uh, it was all done in 2019. And in fact, I wrote the liner notes for it and the river and far and away all at the same time in November of that year, I believe. So always was, I'm not quite sure why we did it really. I think it had just come up as um, universal saying okay to it. And it seemed uh, like it was um, worthwhile doing. And, um, you know, the elements were handy. And, um, but what, what, what happened was we had within the record label, Universal Music Group, we had personnel changes at the very end of 2019. And then after we got far and away out the following March, we sort of hit a stopper due to COVID and it took a while for things to um, ramp back up and for people to get adjusted to working at home and to figuring out new ways of doing things and so forth. So there was unfortunately a, uh, a very big backlog of Universal Music Group projects. And this was just sort of stuck in there, not happening. Um, in addition, we had a quite involved um, series of correspondence regarding the clearing of the two tracks that, quote, smoke gets in your eyes, mm. which don't occur in the film. But uh, we wanted them on this release, and it took a while to work through with the publishers of that song to uh, be able to include this. So the whole thing took a while. It certainly was a... Uh, a sort of it, it felt the impact of the COVID delays, um, and then finally things started getting caught up, and we were at last able to get it out this year. But uh, that's been basically sitting around, finished, mastered, packaging, and all finished since end of 2019. Although it's gone through some changes since then, you know, um, we've also had changes in the people I deal with at Amblin. So a lot has changed in the past year. So. It finally came out. It's just one that I wanted to do. It seemed like there was um, a decent amount of additional music to add and um, to put out an album that would have just the score rather than the songs that the original soundtrack CD had, 1989. Mm -hmm. um, and it's one of the ones that I felt that I was um, really wanting to write the notes for, because while I'm not the greatest fan of the movie, I think that uh, I had the context to bring to it to illuminate what um steven spielberg was going for and why it is sort of in a sort of an essential um component of his filmography 
and how it's linked mm -hmm. to other things that he did. And I was very happy to get that one done. I quite like it. It's um, it's got it's charming and in its own way unique um, in among uh, Williams's output. With Always, it's a film which, and I think we talked about this a little bit last year because obviously with the parallel of Mikhail Solomon and, and Far and Away and this beautiful visual eye he has, and, and here's, you know, his work with Spielberg on this film, I think is something quite special. You know, the, the use of light, which we know Spielberg is a master at, but there's something quite, uh, yeah, it's soppy, but it, it, it is soppy with a, with a sincerity do you know what i mean it's not mm -hmm. it's not too you know kind of silly and this was a kind of era of filmmaking which you guys will recall because we're all kind of similar ages you know that for some reason this kind of late 80s 90s time you had studios fighting it out with very similar um narratives you know like ghost was compared to always and then you had like like Father Like Son and vice versa and all these films suddenly came out at the same time and they're all so similar. But, uh, you know, this one stood alone. And, and, I, and I think the editing by Michael Kahn is something as well, which is so, it's, 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 quite, uh, it's quite unique in the Spielberg canon, isn't it? Because, you know, even little things like, you know, the one of the dudes at the, you know, the air um, training base, you know, let's go hit the big lights. And then suddenly we, we cut away to the, you know, the bar. And then there's some very lovely editing whenever we see uh, Richard Dreyfus um, and Holly Hunter, you know, discuss things, you know, he's walking towards a door and suddenly, you know, the camera kind of goes out of focus and it's, it's done in a very, very elegant way. Do you both, do you guys know what I mean? I do. And I like, uh, there was an interview with Spielberg that I found that's included in the liner notes where he talked about the evolution of the screenplay and how they kept removing all of the gimmicky things from the script, like walking through walls and all that special effects type stuff. And instead mm. when ended up with something very poetic, which is that the new fellow in her life comes over for dinner and, and without knowing he's there, of course, she slams the screen door in Richard Dreyfuss's face <laughs> only to have the camera pan across the room. And then suddenly Dreyfus is in the kitchen. Yeah. Yes. So it's like yeah. stuff like that where it's um, it has a visual impact, but it's also um, a bit of poetry that relates to the characterizations. So I, I, I came to appreciate those things quite a bit more.
I'm a very big fan of the original of a guy named Joe. And from the time that uh, I had remembered seeing that on TV as a kid. So from very early, it feels like late 70s, early 80s, I remember reading that Steven Spielberg wanted to remake it. And I got all excited about him working, making a big World War II movie. And, uh, you know, so initially I was sort of very disappointed by taking the movie out of World War II and taking the sort of pilot heaven component out of it, which I thought was very charming, especially when you have um, the this incredible speech written by Dalton Trumbo that is given by Lionel Barrymore in the in the original, which is very, very moving. In a lot of ways, A Guy Named Joe feels more like an early Spielberg movie than always does. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I was sorry to see some of that go, but then later on, and especially in reevaluating the movie this time around, um, I could see that it was sort of stripping away all of those things which would have been very difficult to address because of course one of the things that audiences were not asking themselves in 1943 was if the germans had their own pilot heaven so it's you have a lot of sort of mind a minefield to navigate with it that uh, taking it out of the war sort of dodged but um this uh, whole idea of um basically settling your 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 spiritual matters um and um releasing someone from um you know an, an unhealthy relationship and of course at the time i didn't say this in the notes but at the time spielberg was going through his divorce from amy irving mm -hmm. and so that factor i think that's come up in articles over the years that factor has certainly um played into it but when i looked at the movie again i realized something that's completely different from the original in the original spencer tracy as a ghost gets assigned to van johnson as the young pilot and follows him as he progresses throughout his career as a flyer and just it's coincidence that he gets uh, assigned to the same place where his uh where his lady friend is going to then encounter um, Van Johnson's character. Looking at always, I realized that no, Audrey Hepburn as the angel knew that. She knew that this guy played by Brown Johnson was going to be the person that uh, meets Holly Hunter and um, deliberately did that so that Dreyfus's character would have to deal with this, would have to face this and um, purge this uh, in order to move on um, in order for his spirit to be released. I think what I said is that he, you know, in order to get his own spiritual freedom, he has to give her hers. And um, the remake focuses much more on that in a very beautiful way, as opposed to the original, which has its own merits, but very, very different from Ghost, which came six months later, which is a movie I don't care for, where to me, it just feels like, um, you know, the uh, it's about the, uh, the uh, the evil Pac-Man carting you off to hell. I'm not I'm not a big fan of that. But uh, um, always is actually a beautiful movie about um, relationships, and also touches on this whole tension between putting work ahead of your relationships, which is a theme that comes up over and over in Spielberg's work, particularly around that time.
always is a, such a unique film in, in Spielberg's fi- filmography in the sense that it feels part of his universe. I mean, right from the first scene, if you think about it. Uh, and, you know, some of his personal obsessions, uh, you know, as seen in some of his previous works, like, you know, airplanes, or World War II, inspired setting, you know, classic Hollywood filmmaking style. You know, uh, all of these are presented in this movie again, but this time I think that they all convey uh, a really a renewed sense of identity for, for Spielberg. I mean, uh, in your liner notes, Mike, you, you really go deep into the film's qualities and its place in Spielberg's filmography, and I want to leave to, to the people to discover your beautiful essay on the movie as found in the liner notes. But uh, what I saw in this movie, because I rewatched it recently after several years, and I, I find it like a, a revisitation of also of the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice. Uh, because, you know, the scene where uh, Holly Hunter decided to go on the plane and start to deep dive into the forest on fire, and they say, this is a descent to hell, really. And, and, and I found it so moving and so beautiful. And also the fact that the movie feels very real, despite this ethereal quality that also the music gives to the, to the atmosphere. You know, you see the elements at play, you know, air and fire and water at the end. It's so beautiful. I think it's very elemental. And I, I always love when Spielberg goes into that very mythological we could say territory, and and speaks about the human condition. I think it definitely does. But I'll you know lead you down another line of thinking, which is something that's sort of always been a bit of a frustration for me about his films. Somebody I can't remember who actually called him this, but at one point called him the poet of suburbia, and mm. that's largely based on three films, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, E.T., and Poltergeist. Mm-hmm. And after that, he never really went back to that setting too much. And if you think about what happened with any films that he did that were set in the present day, they were always set in places that were outside the realm of what we would call normal, average, everyday life, like E.T., always as a bunch of isolated forest firefighters, you know, in Montana. And so that's their, they have their own little community and the, and, and their own type of personalities. And it's very sort of an inbred type of group that we see with, we don't really see them interacting yeah. with average American families. Um, in hook, we only get a tiny little bit set in present day London basically confined to one house and to a, a um, sort of a, a, a benefit dinner. Um, we don't see too much of it. The rest of it, we're in fantasy land. Jurassic Park, it's paleontologists out in the Badlands, and then we go to an, an island, and again, we're isolated from the real world. And then after that, he just made period movie after period movie after period movie with um, the exceptions being the terminal, where we're locked in, literally in a terminal in an airport, and War of the Worlds, where we're going to bring uh, alien invaders. So we haven't really had any opportunities to actually be the poet of suburbia 
again. And that's always frustrated me. As much as I love Lincoln and Warhorse and Catch Me If You Can, think about all the other movies that he's done. Um, they're either in the future or they're in the past. They're historic, you know, Amistad, Munich. And I've been waiting and waiting and waiting for him to get back to make something set in the present day. And he hasn't done it. And uh, I, you know, I still hope that he does. But uh, while I appreciate always being updated and being a contemporary setting, we're not really seeing um, sort of average families, you know, and there's only children in one scene in the picture, which is this uh, school bus scene. But that I think also has um, a, uh, that's very, very specific because um, it's at that moment that Holly Hunter sees Brad Johnson as um, perhaps husband material after uh, he sees she sees how good he is with kids. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's quite a touching scene that. One of the things as well with, um, with always when you think back to the, you know, the actual opening scene that you mentioned that a minute ago, Maurizio, you know, that was, and we're talking 1990, 91, whenever home video was kind of a big thing and people were getting their, you know, home cinemas uh, with widescreen TVs and stereo systems and Dolby Surround. And that opening scene of always was actually uh, a showcase for, home entertainment stores uh, to, to actually get audiences to appreciate this is what, you know, you could have in your living room. This is because it, it's, it's one of those scenes that, because I remember, I remember it well, and it's, uh, it's actually a, a beautiful showcase for a, a great uh, home theater setup, uh, that opening scene of always. That's by the way, that's, um, that's Teddy Grossman is one of the guys in the little fishing dinghy that gets sort of knocked overboard. He's the, he's the, he loses his leg and jaws. He has the bicycles over his head and ET, and he's the stiff in the Goonies. So he always has a rough time. He does, but it's uh, but what what a treat though, Mike, to to have these extra cues. You know, the music which we've never heard ever anywhere, and you know the alternates. And I, I think earlier on today, Richie and I were saying how just ingenious the smoke gets in your eyes interpolation is and it's just it really is that classic um careful placement
And then whenever we have a reprise of, of Jim Thatcher's soaring Friend Swan solo, the alternating credits, it's just, it, it really creates quite a lump in the throat. It's a beautiful playing and, um, and thank you for your help. And, you know, you took that on to get to him and get that quote and those recollections. I will say that uh, putting the album together, there was a decision here for sure about um, keeping the tracks from the original album intact. And that was by and large administrative, but also because of the nature of the music and of where the previously unreleased pieces would go. Um, that we took the approach of just making it as chronological as possible and dropping in the uh, selections that had not been part of the album. And then we had a number of extras, and I was really shocked when it came out to be 79 minutes. Um, it's a, you know, rather a long, very healthy uh, um, length CD, really an embarrassment of riches. And I'm just glad we, at last, it took a long time to get the smoke gets in your eyes cleared. I don't know if that was part of why it wasn't used in the first place. Um, but, I, but I don't think so, because, I mean, the song itself is in the film. Two versions of it, but uh, it was. Gl I'm glad that we finally got it sorted out, and it really is to me um, a, a really good release. And um, I was pleased to just everything about it, the art and the and the notes, and how all that came together, and that it uh, sort of stands alongside all the other ones that I've gotten to do. ever think about including also the original song sung by the platters or that was impossible in terms of licensing or stuff like that i think i had had a thought of maybe opening the album with that but that was before i knew that we weren't going to have space for it and i mean have, if we had ended up as 74 minutes and i had space for that song then I would probably have said, yeah, let's open with the song because, you know, it's, uh, or maybe maybe not the Platters version, but the other one, um, the one that was recorded for the film, um, opening with it and then closing with the John Williams arrangement of it. Um, but I think once I saw that all the music was going to be a very tight disc, nearly 80 minutes, um, the songs just had to go. And the mm -hmm. people that are interested in this, um, really wouldn't want the songs anyway, and they're all, um, you know, very easy to get elsewhere. I think this the music in this film belongs to the same 
approach or we can say the same aesthetic word of scores like I think uh, Empire of the Sun but also subsequent scores uh, like uh, AI artificial intelligence which by the way is being re-released by La and records uh, you know same content of the previous release but you know it's back in print so if people uh, didn't grab it the first time now they have a chance There is a sort of apparent emotional detachment given to this ethereal quality of the electronic textures uh, that produces almost this halo effect. Uh, but yet, I think at the same time, the music also reveals this deep, almost heart-rending uh, aspect that really speaks about uh, this sense of loss or the incapability of you know, touching the person you love and, and you know, being there but not being able to, to touch the people, the, you know, the sense of physical absence. You know, even even the magical horn solo by, by Jim Thatcher that we were speaking about, you know, it reaches this impossible height. I mean, and, and but representing this really sense of longing. Do you think, guys, this could be a really one of the most, uh, we could say, sentimental scores by John Williams? Mm. I mean, I, dreamlike is what comes to my mind, that the, the overriding character of it. Um, mm. And certainly um, the way that it sneaks in, it's 20 minutes or so before we get any score in the film, which was, I think, a first. I don't think we really, Schindler's List did that, maybe some other things later. But uh, that was sort of sort of the first time where we didn't really start off with some kind of music at the beginning of the film. So it had to sort of come out of um, the sense of what is it? How do you characterize in music this the efforts of making a romantic relationship work and click? Mm -hmm. It's all very hazy and dreamlike in, in, in a lot of ways. So the music sort of captures that. And then when you add the spiritual component to it, that uh, you're going to explore this conceit that, you know, he's 
around as a ghost and uh, needs to sort of settle his earthly affairs, it's it's going to naturally lend itself to that kind of ethereal quality. And uh, I also wonder if um, at the time we'd have to go back and look up reviews, but I seem to recall that around that time, Williams was starting to get some negative reviews of some of his scores as being yes. too bombastic and overbearing. So I yeah. wonder if there was any sort of conscious attempt to scale it back and be quieter because in the space of a very short amount of time, he did always and presumed innocent and Stanley and Ira. And a lot of these, he chose these very understated. I found some really interesting um, connections between the electronic effects used in Always and then that were used almost verbatim in, in Presumed Innocent. I mean, I know that the way John works with electronics is usually to assign to people like Randy Gerber or back then Ralph Grierson or Ian Underwood a series of you know indications to, to construct and to build specific sounds. And I think in the liner notes you mentioned about uh, that he did a specific session with the electronic, uh, with laying down the electronic tracks. Am I right? Yes, that was the first. They did that first. They laid down the electronics first as a bed, and then everything. And then that would be the same from take to take that the orchestra was playing. And that and that's very interesting because I think it was kind of a first for John back then. I mean, there is something similar maybe in Accidental Tourist. Uh, the, the same, same similar electronic textures that he used, but I don't know if they, that those were played live with the orchestra. But this was the first time. I mean, and this became a kind of a, a signature for him in terms of how he deals with electronics. I mean, he, I, you know, I was mentioning before AI, artificial intelligence. There are also there some similar uh, electronic textures and lots of you know patterns and and some beds. Uh, that over which the orchestra then plays.
I would agree with you. I mean, I think we definitely when we looked at the scores for the accidental tourist, we were surprised about how much electronics are actually in there. And also Jurassic Park, I might add, is, is filled with it. And I know that when we did that in concert and we had to revoice a lot of those electronic lines, even like when the Brachiosaur appears, there's synth going through all of that. Um, you wouldn't think so, but it's now 100% acoustic when you see it in concert. But uh, so that does seem to be right around that Empire of the Sun, which is of Eastwick era. Mm -hmm. um, maybe changing recording engineers, changing orchestrators. Um, you know, maybe that was related to it or just, uh, you know, following what other people were talking about and um, uh, what other people may have been working with, you know. He talks to other composers or whatever. I mean, so there's just a sort of progression into that. I mean, I think ne ne never more so than Presumed Innocent, which strikes me as being very synth-driven more than anything mm -hmm. else he's done. I think it, it was around that era when I spoke with uh, Ralph Grierson, which was John's pianist, but that after a while he moved toward more synth work for John. Yes. And I think it was around that era, I think late 80s, early 90s. Right, because I don't think there's any... I don't think there's any electronics say, in Space Camp or, well, there are some in Space Camp now I think about it, but they're more melodically, they're not part of the texture, they're more like the melodies is a, is a key, is a key, electronic keyboard yes. um, or um, Temple of Doom or, um, you know, it, it does seem that once we got to the late 80s, those were coming in more and more. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting. I think it's something that is not usually talked about, uh, John. I mean, of course, he's known for his great symphonic or casual language, but he uses electronics in very subtle, very interesting ways, I think. Well, look, yeah, I mean, if, if you think back even to the Fury, uh, you know, the Death and the Carousel, that's, uh, I mean, you know, there's some really, really cool electronics in that, as you, as you I'm sure, both recall. And, yeah, and there was that sort of um, uh, theremin-type sound in some of the cues also, but I don't know if that was necessarily electronic but that had that sort of quality to it that he was exploring. Um, and uh, I mean, I guess it all would go back to Close Encounters where the electronics played a very key role in some of the diegetic music in it. Um, and then it sort of uh, went on from there. But uh, I think it's interesting that Jerry Goldsmith was sort of doing a lot of this sort of in parallel. His he always had synthesizers in his scores, but they seemed to become much more prominent um, in the early to mid eighties. So for example, if you compare the first, the two Poltergeist scores, the first has no electronics at all. And the second one is the electronics are very, very obvious. So between 82 and 86, this, this shift really started happening. So that might've been sort of across the board in film scoring in general in Hollywood. Mm. Yes, and James Horner too was doing all synth scores back then in right. you know Name of the Rose and in many cases using the same player you know uh, Ian Underwood and Ralph Grierson and Randy Kerber all of these great you know keyboard players that were you know have played in <laughs> hundreds of, I don't know thousands of film scores.
And, and speaking of studio musicians, me and Tim last year had a wonderful conversation with uh, Jim Thatcher, who we already mentioned before. I think it, it, this was the first uh, school he played as a first chair horn with John. That's right, yeah, that's right. Kind of a changing of the guard. Uh, when he told us this beautiful story about, uh, you know, coming in and having this huge part, you know, huge solo, it's not something that happens every day for, for a studio musician. You know, you have to be ready that that could happen, but it's not like <laughs> something that happens every day. And I think it speaks volumes about both John's confidence in writing something very demanding for the player, but on the other side, I think it speaks about the great level of, of musicianship that these studio musicians have, which I all, I'm always amazed at. I mean, and, and this is something, you know, I'm really passionate about, but it's something that really never ceases to amaze me to, to discover the, the subtleties of the playing. It's, it's just magic, I think. It is. And they're just, uh, they're all, they're all, you know, it's just a particular type of genius and, um, um, Randy, of course, really is master of the uh, celesta and has done that for a lot of John Williams' scores. You know, that, that's played such a key role in Hook and Harry Potter. And um, so, you know, so uh, that's, that's an instrument that John quite, uh, quite likes. And, um, you know, Randy knows just how to articulate it. It just came to my mind that uh, the theme from Always was featured uh, in the beautiful 1919 Sony Classical album, uh, the Spielberg Williams collaboration, you know, the famous Sony Classical compilation that really, I think, opened the gates uh, to many John Williams admirers and really showed them uh, a wider selection of his repertoire. And it was certainly the case for me personally because back then uh, I think this was the first exposure I had about um, the theme from Always and John did a beautiful concert arrangement uh, which was mostly based on the uh, end credits of the movie but it also featured a prominent uh, solo piano uh, part do you know guys if he ever played that piece in concert beyond you know recording it for, for this uh, Spielberg Williams collaboration album. I was at that session, you know. Oh, oh. Um, that was the first session I got to go to. But um, well, there was the Spielberg 10th anniversary concert happened, but I actually don't think that they played always at it. Um, so I mean, maybe they just included it on the album because at that point it would have been the most recent collaboration, and it would have looked odd to have left one of them off because they even went and did the, the new. Uh, Sugarland Express arrangement. I think we'd love to hear you talk about a, a little bit further. I, I think, I mean, being there at Symphony Hall for that 
seminal album. Uh, tell us more. I mean, uh, do, do do tell us more. Oh God, I don't know. I mean, I don't. I don't think I want to go into the story about what I was doing that led me there. But I was look. It was. I was just totally in awe of everything. I hadn't seen John perform, even conduct uh, at all until the Fourth of July of nineteen eighty six was the first time the Liberty Fanfare Fourth um, of July celebration in New York City. I don't know. I'll save this for another time. But there were circumstances where I ended up there because I was doing something else. And I was just in awe of it. But everybody was far away at Symphony Hall. So I was very, very far away. But I was there and I did um, hear Close Encounters and and Empire of the Sun being performed um, for the recording. So that was really, I didn't hear always being recorded, but it was those two. It was Close Encounters and Empire of the Sun. That that recording, I think we've all spoken about this before. Of Close Encounters, is John Williams' personal favorite recording, uh, you know, ever. That particular one, I didn't know that. Yeah, it is, and well, yes, I mean that, that that's a tremendous album. Oh yes, it's a seminal album, uh, and I think it remains one of John's best in terms of uh, recordings with the Boston Pops, and and revisitation of his film repertoire. It's certainly one of my personal favorites. Uh, for for many reasons, uh, I think in that era, the early '90s, we saw a slew of great re-recordings from many great film composers of the era. I mean, I'm also thinking about the beautiful Moviola album by John Barry, or the fantastic compilation by Jerry Goldsmith with the Philharmonia Orchestra featuring suites from the Blue Max and Gremlins and Masada, another fantastic. Uh, scores from him, uh, and also Ennio Morricone was doing was starting to to revisit and to do new digital recordings of themes and suites from his famous film scores with the uh, Santa Cecilia Orchestra here in Italy, and I think the early nineties was a seminal era for for film score fans and collectors because the CD format was really now starting to be ubiquitous and and we saw so many great releases and new digital recordings of great film scores and back to john i think that album the spielberg williams collaboration volume one was absolutely um stepping stone for his career because it remains the recording where we can find some of the unique pieces that he did like the the slave children parade from temple of doom or Exultate Justi from Empire of the Sun, and Cadillac of the Sky from Empire of the Sun, and also Always. It remains uh, one of John's best recordings uh, with the Boston Pops.
before we move away from all ways, I think we should definitely highlight uh, Jim Titus's work. And like, I'm looking here at the the rear album cover. And oh, my God, I mean, that, that's, I think one of the most beautiful um, reverse, you know, back covers of an album. I mean, it's so perfectly uh, placed. You know, we're talking about the a dreamlike film, and in that one image, it's amazing how that just sums up the film so succinctly. It does, and I was very happy to see Audrey Hepburn make the cover. Yes, lovely tribute, beautiful tribute, because, I mean, so many of her scenes in, in, in those cornfields are, are dreamlike, and you have this um, environmental uh, artwork, uh, because Jim Titus has been doing this since, what, Empire of the Sun, I think, am I right, or did he do it before then? Might have been before that, but that probably was the first one I had been sort of in on. Yeah, I mean, every time he does one of these... Uh, it seems to get better. Uh, it's just, it, it's it's so perfect. It just, it's, it sells the whole concept just, uh, you know, without any without any ambiguity. It's just perfect. I mean, I'll sing his praises in, by saying one little thing, and I don't know that this is true of other artists. It probably is. But when he does a project, he watches the movie and um, certainly, and, and really tries to capture the feel and the look and uh, the color palette and things like that. Um, you know, uh, in a very sensitive way. So um, we're very lucky to sort of uh, have him in the stable. Yes, Jim Titus' work is absolutely exceptional, in my opinion. Uh, his artwork and design on all these uh, various John Williams releases is always absolutely wonderful. And I think he's a great asset to have because it makes all these releases all the more special because uh, they are not just objects to be kept into a collection, uh, but I think that they are part of this future-proofing uh, that you, Mike, are doing in restoring the music itself. But, uh, you know, the packaging and the liner notes and everything that accompanies also the, the enjoyment of the music is absolutely essential to have. And it's something that really makes all these releases very, very special for any John Williams fan. Thanks to Mike Medicino and Tim Burden for their time and generosity. We'll talk again with Mike in a future episode of the Legacy of John Williams podcast. In the meantime, visit thelegacyofjohnwilliams.com for more articles and interviews. From Maurizio Caschetto, thank you for listening. Until the next episode of the Legacy of John Williams podcast. <laughs>